Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Louise Ford. Louis edited such powerful films as The Witch, Don't Breathe, Thoroughbreds, Wildlife, The Lighthouse, and Bad Education. Now she has edited the mind-blowing epic, The Northman. Lou, thanks so much for joining me today. I love the film. I thought you did an amazing job. Wow, Glenn, thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Very flattered. Absolutely. So how did you get into editing? I actually went into journalism first, and I worked as a journalist in London for about 10 years. And I met my husband, Andy, and he was actually an editor before me. He was editing TV in England while I was at Cosmopolitan magazine. I was a copy editor. Basically, my job was very similar to what I do on films, which is the writing comes in from the journalists, and it's my job to shape it. Rewrite the intro, grab people with the story, frame it, write a headline, all that stuff. But after I finished work, I'd always go around to Andy's edit room because he would inevitably be working later than me. Uh, He'd show me the stuff he was working on, and I would say, hmm, I didn't really understand what that guy was talking about there. Maybe you need to put a shot in of him (laughs) doing this thing. I would give him notes, you know, and he would always be very encouraging and be like, you should do this job. (laughs) (laughs) And I resisted it for a long time because I just thought, I've just married the guy. I'm not going to just do the same job. That's really lame. But anyway, fast forward a few years. I thought, what the hell? I've always loved films and the arts had always been the thing that I would get excited about and interested in. But something about being in America, actually, in New York City... I sort of found myself mixing with people who were working in independent film and just occurred to me, oh, well, they don't know any more than I do. Maybe I could do this. So I I did an editor's course at the Edit Centre. The first time I sat down at the keyboard and realised that I had all this creativity at my disposal, you know, sound, you've got the acting, storytelling, it's the music, it's the art, that I can control all that with a keyboard. It was just like... Mm -hmm being struck by a bolt of lightning and I was like oh this is amazing <laughs> this is what I should do yeah. I was sold instantly but I was in my mid-30s by that point I knew exactly what I wanted to do I want to cut feature films I wasn't going to get sidetracked by doing anything else I wanted to cut scripted the edit center you did a week of learning the basics of editing and then you had five weeks of learning on a live project which was, was amazing and during those five weeks also they would have editors and having been through one career, I was very forward, not shy at all about going up to every single one of them and was like, can you contact the sales, you know, immediately? And I emailed everybody as soon as they finished the course. And Michael Taylor took me on as an edit room intern on a film that he was cutting. We got on really well. He's an independent film editor, member of ACE, cut The Farewell and Nine Lives. And he took me on as his assistant for four or five years. He encouraged me right from the very beginning. Even when I was interning on the film that he was cutting, he said, I'll be working till, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. If you want to come and sit behind me and watch me work after you finished at six, feel free. And he would give us scenes to work on. Even as an intern, he gave me a scene. 
That's great. I know, because he's a brilliant mentor. Every time I work with an assistant, I always give them something to cut. I may not use it. Sometimes, obviously, if they do a good job on the scene, I'll give them notes and make some changes. Yeah, I find that sometimes I won't use the scene as is, but they'll do some edits that I would have never thought of. And I'll be like, oh, exactly. wow, that's, that's a really interesting way to approach it. I wouldn't have thought of that. And I like that better. It is a collaborative art form. So you should always be open to an idea from anybody if it's a good idea. The key is knowing whether it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> As I was assisting him, I knew I didn't want to be an assistant for like 15 years before I even started cutting anything. So as soon as I was assisting, I was trying to find short films to cut. And I'm sure that was a lot of work because you were probably assisting during the day and cutting on the weekends and at night. Exactly. And then how did you and Robert Eggers end up working together? During the time that I was assisting Michael Taylor... I met a production assistant. We just got talking and she said to me one day, would you consider cutting a short film? We don't have any money. But, and I was like, yep, <laughs> looking for someone to cut. Let's have a look at the script. She was producing it. It was a childhood friend of hers who was directing it. It was Robert Eggers' version of The Telltale Heart, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Mm-hmm. But you can tell from literally the first lines of any script, I believe, whether the person who's written it has a cinematic sensibility. And from the minute I started reading it, I was just enthralled and amazed and impressed and blown away because I'm always looking for something that I haven't seen before, something audacious even, something a bit crazy. That's definitely Eggers' uh, yeah. vision. <laughs> I read that script and was like, this is exactly the kind of films I want to work on. That's great. So, yeah, it was just very serendipitous. We got on instantly. You know, I grew up in England. My mom introduced me to a lot of English folk tales, fairy tales, artwork, illustrators, and obviously folk tales, myths, fairy tales are a big part of thing that he's interested in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To me young American kid, and I'm talking about Arthur Rackham, a semi-obscure Victorian British fairy tale illustrator, and he knows exactly who I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, whoa, okay, we're on the same wavelength. I feel like all of his films that uh, you do with him have this lyrical, mythic quality. It feels very real and yet mystical at the same time. There's this balance between being extremely grounded in reality and also having these fantasy-like sequences mixed in and balancing between those two dualities. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually. Rob grew up in a very small village in New Hampshire, and as a child, he played in the fields, in the woods, and me too, in the northwest of England. There's a lot of nature in his films, you know, animals and trees and I guess there's something about the natural world, which is magical, but it's also very dangerous, Mm. right? And scary and brutal. And as far as editing Robert Eggers' films, I feel like him and Jaren have a very clear vision about how they're shooting. Famously, they don't shoot Hollywood coverage. Mm-hmm. It's all about telling the story and it's all about keeping the audience immersed in the story. And of course, every time you make an edit, you're breaking the connection visually on some subconscious level. And that's great if it works. Of course, the problem is if it doesn't work, <laughs> if you haven't got anything to fall back on, you know, I find myself painted into a corner. So 
sometimes it's problem solving, but I feel like honestly, the biggest skill that I bring to Rob's films is actually choice of performance, like choice of take. It's how you craft the emotional through line of the character from beginning to end by choice of take. And again, like any editor, director, relationship, I'm beginning to realize more and more, of course you have to be on the same wavelength creatively, there's also a sense of being on the same wavelength psychologically and emotionally. So if I'm watching five takes of Willem Dafoe, for example, and they're all going to be good. If it's Willem Dafoe, they're all going to be good. So it's interesting how a lot of the times the takes I choose for my first assembly are the takes that stay in. Not all the time, but I would say 75% of the time, you know, we're on the same wavelength. As far as the mysticism, I think that's just in the shooting in the production design and the costume and the the way that he directs the actors it's part of the dna of uh, the project it kind of is it kind of is the way it's written i mean it's also obviously the language the dialogue robert's mum ran a theater school for children and robert's father is a shakespearean scholar so you can <laughs> see you know where rob's special sensibility comes from he's a product of his upbringing and his environment as we all are, you know. My parents were not in the arts or anything, although my mom was very interested in art and literature and films, and that's where I got my influences from, and she happened to be interested in the weirder stuff, horror, science fiction, the occult, all that. In a very middle-class English point of view, not she wasn't like a witch or anything, <laughs> just to <laughs> say. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, all those books in the 70s, you know, Dennis Wheatley and The Devil Rides Out, and I grew up watching Hammer Horror films. And Yeah, you had you know, stuff like The Wicker Man. Like, oh, The Wicker Man, yeah. A little bit more out there. And also with Rob's films, music and sound are huge, huge in terms of getting you into that. Well, let's talk about the music a little bit, because I thought that the music on this was so special. It sounded as if the composer was using instruments that you would have heard during the Vikings' time. Well, yeah, they sounded like that because that's exactly what kind of instruments they were using. (laughs) Robin Carolan and Sebastian Gainsborough are the composers. They're both obviously hugely talented musicians, but what's astonishing to me is that neither of them had ever scored a movie before. Not a short, not an indie, and this is the first time they've ever scored a movie, and they wrote over 40 pieces of music. Wow. Films like two hours, 15 minutes long, and I I believe there's two hours of music in it. Yeah, there's a lot, but it doesn't feel like it's competing with the visuals at all. It feels like it's in sync with it. So for these guys to have never scored a film is uh, quite an achievement. The Northman, as a project, has been floating around for five or six years. So Rob's talking about, hey, if we ever got to make this film, you could do the music. So Robin, for a long time, had been researching those instruments from that time period and that Mm. geographical Scandinavian location. So there's an instrument called a taggle harper, which I think is a string instrument. There's loads of those in there, loads of drums. Robin said after we finished, he never wants to hear another another (laughs) drum again. And did they give you materials to work with when you were doing your edit or did they score it afterwards? They were scoring it constantly during the edit. Very helpful. I like to cut my assemblies dry because I want to see how the drama plays without it. Mm -hmm. I know that's not how a lot of editors work or a lot of directors 
demand music in an assembly, but I... I think if they allow it, it's always a good technique because music can be a crutch. And to really see if the scene is playing, it's better to watch it dry. It's always helpful when you're presenting it to producers because it's hard to watch an entire movie dry, but it really does force you to push the material and to make it work as well as you possibly can without music. The Northman was a bigger film than any of us had ever worked on. Me, Rob, Craig, the production designer, Linda, the costume designer, Jaren had never shot a movie this big. So it was kind of a luxury to have composers on for the director's cut. And we were able to do a mix for the director's cut with these brilliant British sound guys that we had. Fantastic. The editorial process of this film was like a massive, massive step up from anything Mm. I'd ever done before. You know, I had a visual effects editor, a first assistant editor, a second assistant editor, a post-production assistant, the visual effects producer and the two coordinators. We were all working on the same floor. And did you like working that way? It was absolutely brilliant having so much support. My first assistant editor, Paolo Bazzetti, he had been trained by Pietro Scalia. He'd worked on a bunch of Willie Scott movies. He was instrumental to me being able to edit this film. There's no question because I had so many visual effects and then you're coordinating with the composers and you're coordinating with the music editor and you're coordinating with the sound crew. And he took that weight off my shoulders so that I could just concentrate on being creative with Rob. I feel like a good assistant is worth their weight in gold because if they can let you just focus on being creative, then you can get into that state of flow. And if you're being interrupted all the time, it's really hard to get in that state. And by the same token, he was organizing me, so he knew when he did need to interrupt me. He he was a huge support because he had done it all before, you know. So we went through three preview screenings and, you know, every time, you obviously have to make changes and it's just a stamina thing. You're sort of metabolizing these notes and you have to try and just keep your energy up and keep fresh, you know, and keep coming to them with an open mind. That's the challenge, mm-hmm. not being defensive or anything like that. Neil Gaiman had a quote. He said something like, when they tell you that something's wrong, they're almost always right. When they tell you how to fix it, they are almost always wrong. Yeah. So that became my sort of mantra, and it's true. The studio might say, as an example, if we got a note back from a test screening where people said, we don't understand the Valkyrie. What's the Valkyrie about? Is it real? Is it not real? We don't like it. So the studio might be, hey, I think we need to lose the Valkyrie. But... If we can't figure out a way of doing this, then we're not working hard enough. So we would spend time trying to figure out how can we make it so that people understand what the Valkyrie is and why she's there. That's how we dealt with notes all the time. This that classic note behind the note thing, right? Yeah, and I feel that a lot of times when somebody does give you a note, there's something that's bothering them. They might not be able to know exactly what it is, but they know... There's something that they don't understand, or or maybe it's something that didn't get set up earlier. And so the note behind the note is so critical because when somebody says, well, that scene doesn't work. Well, maybe it's not that that scene doesn't work. Maybe it's something earlier with the character who's in that scene that didn't get set up right. So it's just 
understand exactly what's bothering people so that you can address it without just taking a scalpel and cutting it out. Yes. And it's almost always something earlier, right? When people are bothered by something, you almost always have to look to the previous scene or like you said, a particular thing hasn't been set up properly. And, you know, we're not like trying to willfully make something artistically obscure that only certain freaks and weirdos are going to understand. (laughs) You want people to enjoy the work that you do. And if there's something holding them back from enjoying it, then you want to address it, right? You want to figure it out. Yeah. And I feel that one of the reasons I think that Eggers chose this story is because it is simple so that he could then add layers of complexity upon a very simple story and really delve into it. And I think that that's what you guys sought to achieve with this. I think you're right. The plot itself is not that complex. It's a revenge story. Yeah. Boy sees father killed by uncle, mother carried off. I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fiona. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Then you can be complex and crazy with all the other stuff if you keep it simple. What's Egger's process in the cutting room with you? I'm trying to think, what's a good example? Okay, let's take the Nicole and Amleth scene where there's a turn. Probably my favorite scene in the entire film, by the way. It was fantastic. It's the key scene. I mean, it's the scene, right? And I really enjoyed cutting all the fight scenes, the action, you know, that's really different kind of editing and it's really good fun and it's so frame specific. But taking that scene as, as an example, so I would play through the scene And then he might say, that line of Nicole's, let's look at all the tapes of that. I have script sync. I don't know, I use script sync all the time. I insist on it so that you can go line by line with the dialogue. We'll play all the tapes and we'll discuss which one do we think is the best take. Invariably, we agree. Sometimes we don't. He lets me time things up pretty much. He's usually sitting in the back of the room working on the next script. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to be honest with you, mm-hmm. he lets me just do my thing and then I'll say, hey, it's ready, and I'll show him that, and then we'll just make adjustments. It's a discussion. It's a true collaboration. And I've had other directors who shall remain nameless sort of stand behind me while I'm you know, trying to make an edit. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, cut there. <laughs> yeah, all the classic. Yeah. Hit, hit the space bar. <laughs> I haven't experienced that for quite a few years, I'm glad to say. I feel like the the better directors, the more experienced ones, trust their editors to make those edits, and they're not about to uh, tell the editor frame-wise exactly where to make the edits. I mean, it's funny when you ask me what's your process with Robert, you know, and I sort of have to sit and think because it's really just a conversation. (laughs) There's lots of joking. His films are all very intense and everything, but as a person, he's very funny. (laughs) It's awesome. Yeah, it's just fun. So there's a lot of wonders in this particular film, and I was wondering how many takes does Eggers usually shoot? And also, are you sometimes hiding edits to use multiple takes, or how are you guys approaching these sequences? All of that, yeah. Like the berserker scene around the fire, you know, when they're doing their berserker ritual. I think there was like 24 five or 26 takes of that. Mm. So in that case, he just keeps pushing till he gets what he wants. And that was really hard for everybody, of course, because it was night and it was cold and it was raining and it was muddy and they were trying to dance. I remember Alex screaming into the camera and he had to do that like 25 or 26 times. But he builds up such a relationship with his actors that he can ask them to do that. There's a lot of 
wanners, but a lot of the things that are wanners, of course, as I'm sure you guessed, are not wanners. Like you mm-hmm. talking about the village raid scene. That's not a wanner. It's not. Yeah, I was going to say that village raid is such an amazing shot. And there's some times that he's climbing up the walls and I'm like, okay, I think Lou probably hid some choice edits as he's crossing in front of buildings and things like that. And I'm in no way taking credit for that because really the people who take credit for that are Angela Barson, who was the visual effects supervisor, Cece Smith, who was the fight coordinator, together with Robert and Jaron, of course, they as a team worked out exactly where each edit point was going to be. Oh, so it uh, wasn't planned from the beginning to be one shot. It was to be hidden in certain spots. Exactly. Sort of like 1917 so brilliantly done, but I'm sure many, many edits just hidden in choice places. That sequence was meticulously planned. The, the edit points are kind of baked in by what the visual effects can do, right? About how they can stitch it together at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But after the Canoplica game, which is like the crazy, violent, <laughs> it's such an amazing scene. Yeah. Well, there's a scene after that where all the slaves are dancing around a fire and the slave girl's singing. There's an edit in there that wasn't supposed to be there. But because we like the beginning of one take and the end of another take, we stitched it together. I will take credit for that. But, you know, people seem to think it makes it easier for an editor. And in some respects, okay, you haven't got as many dailies to watch. But coverage, of course, is there to help you get out of... Yeah, it sometimes locks you in. Yes, you have so little control over the pacing then, both within a scene and the macro edit, the pacing of the whole movie. So what happens, of course, is that you end up then taking the whole scenes out, which we did in this case. Mm -hmm. Like the assembly for this film was two hours and 45 minutes. So that's obviously never going to (laughs) fly. So we trim, 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 trim until we get to a certain point and then you watch the film as a whole and then you see that there might be a scene later on where you're like, no, we can't have this talking scene now because now we're in the part of the movie where we need to just be pushing forward and keep the momentum going and keep the energy going. We can't just stop and have a conversation. And they're always amazing scenes and you don't ever want to lose them, but the more important concern to me and to Robert and to, I think, any good director is the pacing overall of the movie. Absolutely. You start by cutting them down, although they might be designed to cut with the previous scene and then cut into the next scene, you can always top and tail, which we did a lot of, a lot. Mm -hmm. And also, we cheated. There are scenes where we put so many speed ramps in, even between words of dialogue, I would be speeding things up to 120%. And, And morphing them or just speed ramping them. Both. I've used fluid morph. I can't remember whether I've used it in this film, but I definitely use it in The Lighthouse. All sorts of tricks like that. Sure. And it's interesting when you say that it didn't serve sometimes the momentum, because I feel like in the second half of the film, there's such a great build with Imleth as he's building towards his revenge and how things start getting more and more out of control. And I feel like if you have a scene that doesn't help support that then it's going to put a wrench in that build yeah and there was a beautiful scene with nicole and that priestess at night looking at the volcano exploding and having a conversation about how the gods were angry Mm. and it was brilliant but ground things to a halt at exactly the wrong time and we tried so many different ways of keeping it in you know moving it to other places and it just never ever worked 
We excavated a bunch of deleted scenes that will be available on the DVD, I believe. That's one thing that I miss with streaming. DVD was a great tool for film lovers to see the deleted scenes, to listen to the director and other crew talk about different scenes, just get more and more context for a film. I just feel like it's a wonderful tool that seems to go by the wayside a little bit with uh, streaming. And we cut some out at the beginning too, for the same reasons, for pacing. There was a lot more Willem being the fool at the court at the beginning, but you just had to go because you need to get into the story quicker. The sound design when the Nightblade <laughs> comes out of its sheath is amazing. And the sound design throughout the whole movie is amazing. Yeah, we worked with a really experienced and brilliant, talented British sound crew led by the supervising sound editor, James Harrison. He was actually Oscar nominated this year for No Time to Die. Steve Little did a lot of the dialogue work and he did an amazing job because a lot of that dialogue is quite difficult. People are talking in different accents. And then we also had Paul Cottrell, the re-recording mixer, James put together the sword sound. It was something like I've never heard before. It was just brilliant. Right. We kept pushing them, though. We kept pushing them to make it louder, louder, louder. And they're all like, (laughs) are you sure it's really, really loud? And we're like, yeah, that's how we want it. I don't think they were used to sort of the onslaught of sound that we were insisting on with the music and everything. I also need to mention a guy called Damien Volpe, who designed a lot of the temple ritual scenes and the hallucinogenic mushroom stew (laughs) and the fight with the mound dweller when he gets the sword. Damien designed a lot of those things because he did the sound on the lighthouse. Actually, he did the sound on the Telltale Heart. So Rob and I had worked with him since 2007. Wow. He's our go-to sound freak. sound guy. So it sounds like Rob is very loyal and he has this group he takes from one project to the next. That must be great because it offers a shorthand. Oh, exactly. He's worked with Jared, the cinematographer, and I since The Telltale Heart. Mm -hmm. Craig Lathrop, the production designer, came on with The Witch, as did Linda Muir, the costume designer. He is very loyal and he knows that now we all have a shorthand together. He knows that creatively we're all on the same page. We can hit the ground running straight away. And there's an authenticity it seems he's looking for. It appears that everyone he continues to use understands that they're not just going for movie moments, but going for something that's real and historical. And also because, of course, we've come up with him and we know him so well, he knows that we're going to keep him honest. Like if he's making a choice that we're like, are you sure you want to do that? We're not going to be shy about, (laughs) you know, saying it. Like, you know, maybe if he brought new people in, they might be a bit nervous about challenging some of his thoughts or decisions about something. Sure. With the shots being so intricate, were you brought on early as an advisor before he shot? Or did you mostly just work with dailies as it was coming in? Rob shares the storyboards. They had actually months longer to work on them than was originally scheduled because the shoot got postponed to COVID for like four months. So Mm. they sent storyboards as they were being done and I gave them suggestions for how it might work better with a particular story point that might need to be made that I wasn't feeling in the particular shot they had planned or a different edit point. I would say, okay, but when you shoot this, make sure that the character's head is in this position so that when I cut from the front to the back, it's going to match. 
I gave them notes, but I don't get involved when they're discussing shot listing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We had to do a pickup shoot at one point. I remember I got this phone call from both Rob and Jan. They're actually on set shooting this particular pickup, and they're like, "How do we end it? <laughs> what should we do? <laughs> Does she stay there? Does she walk out? Do they both walk out in different directions?" So they asked my advice on that, and I think it worked out all right. That's cool. A good collaboration, yeah. Talk about the great scene when young Amalith goes down into the catacombs to become a man. And this is something that you guys did throughout where the characters are staring into the camera lens and cutting between those, which I know is a tricky thing to do to not throw off the audience. The dialogue is what helps. What we're trying to do is put you, the audience member, in Amalith's shoes. So Mm. when Ethan... He starts the first line. You feel like he's talking to you. It was actually quite hard to get the rhythm right there. I would think, yeah. We cut a lot of dialogue out, actually, because we were getting feedback from screenings that it was just going on too long and people were getting antsy. And don't forget, the sound design plays a massive part in that too because the sound all becomes trippy and you have like double-tracked dialogue and all the weird swirly sounds and the music. You're sort of in this headspace already. I do cut a lot with sound. And thinking back to that sequence, we made the dialogue edits first. So we got the timing of the dialogue Mm. before we decided where the picture edit points were going to be. There was a couple of parts of it where we specifically wanted to see young Amleth just listening. But it took a lot of wrangling to get that scene to work. That was one of the scenes that took up the most work, really. Yeah, I feel like because we're not used to, as audiences, seeing a scene where things are cut with characters looking just off the lens or into the lens, there was another scene that you dealt with that, which was when Emilith sees the witch and she tells him his future. It's such a powerful scene, but again, you really get into the headspace of Emilith by doing these tight close-ups that go back and forth, I would think that it's it's a tricky thing for you to get the rhythm right. Björk is an amazing, charismatic presence, but she's not necessarily an actress. So crafting that performance, we had to craft it very carefully. And there were actually lines that were rewritten that are off camera, again, to help tell the stories. That was another scene that took a lot of work But I think it's all about putting you in the film, really. Sure. You did feel, because you were so close on Amalith's eyes, that you were in his head a lot. It does feel, especially with the Wonners, that you're in his point of view. And you have that amazing scene where the king is killed and young Amalith has to escape. And you Mm -hmm. stay on him the whole time. There's probably some edits that I didn't see, but it seems... We're on him until he gets in the boat. Yeah, when he runs away after he cuts Finner's nose off. The main reason that they wanted to try and do that in a one is because to have you be with Amleth. It wasn't like to show off or to make some kind of artistic point. The primary motivation is always, always, always to get the audience into the story and be with Amleth, feel what Amleth's feeling, see what he's going through. When he's going through that village raid, it's horrible and brutal. You need to feel his damage, feel how brutalised he's been by life. And the way to do that is to stay with him through the whole thing. You don't cut away to screaming children or the berserkers doing their thing. 
Well, I think the Berserker scene's interesting because you don't see Amalith for the beginning of the scene. Right. And then pushing into him, it gives him more weight because you haven't seen him and then it reveals him and then stays on him. So that makes you focus that much more on our main character. Right, because at the beginning of the shot, you're like, wait, who are we looking at? What's happening here? Yeah, absolutely. And then because you set that up, when things are happening off screen, like Thornier, he's looking at his friends who are brutalized and hanging. Oh, yeah. You get a glimpse of it at the beginning, but then you're holding that information back to imagine something even worse than what is up there, which is pretty (laughs) terrible. And then right after that was a brilliant sequence when they are about to do the sacrifice and you hear the screams off camera, you know, Mm -hmm. something terrible must be happening. And because we've set it up to be so much with Amalith, when we're away from him, it really ups the tension. Yeah. We don't reveal the source of the screams until a couple of shots into that sequence. Yeah. I believe you were having screams play over the landscapes even. Yeah. And there is like a connection to the natural world with Amleth. That's true. Definitely. So what was the choice to use the landscapes? We're showing that you see the village looking very small and vulnerable, right? Mm. And we don't know where the sound's coming from. So it's to build the tension, to make you feel under threat. It's supposed to be scary. Another place that violence erupts from nowhere was when the arrows strike the king Young Amalith just had this vision of the family tree, and he seems very cheerful. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, these arrows fly across the screen. It's not telegraphed at all. Well, that's life, isn't it? You're going along, and then something comes out of left field, in this case, right field, and uh, (laughs) fucks everything up. (laughs) All of a sudden, your happy existence is uh, thrown into chaos and disarray by an incident. But You've just had this crazy ritual scene, which culminates in his vision of the Tree of Kings, the Tree of his ancestors. Very loud, you know, lots of drums. And then we walk out into this morning. It's very peaceful. It's very quiet. Actually, with the sound design, I think we had birds on at some point, And then we decided to just take them off and just make it very quiet. And also, you have to give the audience a breath after that intense ritual scene mm-hmm. before we plunge them back into the chaos again. <laughs> <laughs> with an arrow to the neck. You know the band The Pixies, right? So their dynamic mm-hmm. in their music. I think there was a documentary called Loud, Quiet, Loud. And that's kind of what we're doing when Robert and I are making films. You know, you want to mix it up. You want to surprise people. You want to keep people on their toes. You know, you don't ever mm-hmm. want the audience to just relax too much. But you need yeah. to give them some breathers. So if you're doing this intense stuff, you need to have the odd breather. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it is like life. Things are going fine and then all of a sudden something happens and your whole world is thrown into disarray. And you don't usually see it happening. Exactly. It comes from out of nowhere and uh, I'm sure we can all relate to that. There's some great fantasy sequences with the Valkyrie and the Tree of Kings. Your visual effects team did a fantastic job and I think that you and Eggers created a really nice template Blue Bolt was the name of the visual effects house, and they did do an amazing job. Robert would give them visual references. There's more visual effects in this movie than either of us had dealt with before. So we were really dependent on Blue Bolt, sort of educating us as we went. But they were always perfectionists themselves. 
Angela Barson, the visual effects supervisor, was so skilled and specialised and understands lighting. They shot all the ancestors who are hanging off the limbs of the tree. They were all shot practically. Here's a little Easter egg for you. There is a werewolf in the back <laughs> on one of the branches <laughs> in the back. <laughs> Not just for, you know, the hell of it, but actually because Sion, who was the co-writer, <laughs> found out allegedly, allegedly... He's related to a character in the sagas from Iceland who was a werewolf. So he allegedly cool. has a werewolf in his family <laughs> ancestry, which is great. Well, speaking about the lighting with the visual effects, the cinematography is so specific and the visual effects really had to feel like it was in the same world. And it did. And getting that in the visual effects is tricky. Incredibly tricky. After Amleth stows away on the slave ship and he bangs his head and he has this whole delirium montage of flashback and flash forwards. And then we come out of that, the ship's sailing into what looks like a massive tree in the water. Well, that's Yggdrasil, which is the world tree in Viking and Norse mythology. None of that is practical. That is all visual. Mm. The northern lights are in the sky in the background as well. So it's incredibly difficult to do. And I believe that the boat is animated in that shot as well. It looks very organic, so they did a fantastic job. They did do a fantastic job. For the Valkyrie carrying him off the first time, we're going over this landscape and then we drop off Mm. this cliff. Was that shot practically? It was all shot practically and Jaren had to orchestrate that shot remotely because it was during COVID and we couldn't go to Iceland. We were in Northern Ireland filming all the rest of it. So he had to direct that shot remotely. Oh. And then we shot the Valkyrie on the horse in Northern Ireland. It blows my mind how, you know, you shoot the background in one country and the elements that you're going to put in the background in another country (laughs) and you get the speed right and the angle right. I do know there's a lot of work to actually get it to work, but the fact that it worked so well is incredible to me. They all did an amazing job. Yeah, absolutely. The sword fight at the gates of hell at the volcano, I was just like, how did they do this? Was this against green screen? I I just couldn't understand how how you guys shot it. They they found a quarry, and I think Craig Lathrop, the production designer, shipped in a bunch of black, I think it was sand. When you see the ash in the air, floating through the air, that is actual ash. A little enhanced Mm. visual effects, but there's a lot of practical stuff in there. Obviously, it wasn't real lava, but they planned very carefully to give off the correct amount of light that lava would give Mm. off. In a sense, to me, that fight is as remarkable as the village raid because I've edited fight scenes before, like in Don't Breathe, for example, there's quite a few fight scenes in that, and they would shoot that with six cameras and they shoot the scene six different times. It's just covered in so many different ways. But with this, they shot it with Clayson and Alex, the actors. Mm-hmm. Again, there's a couple of stitches. I think there's probably like two or three shots there. But it's the actors. And there's a section where the two stunt guys are fighting together. You can't even tell it's them because there's so much steam and smoke from the volcano. But mostly, 90% of that fight is the two actors. It was brutal. They trained for weeks and weeks. It's all preparation. But the end part was where the editing really came in after Amleth's on his knees and we're cutting between Fiona and Amleth. 
It's like editing any scene. You're telling a story with looks and with eyes more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the eyes are so critical. The rage that Alexander displays in this film when he becomes the bear wolf in the berserker ritual, he's screaming and he's so rageful throughout the whole movie. Obviously, that's the part, but when you meet Alex in real life, he's the chillest dude, you know? It's like... (laughs) You can't imagine that he has this rage in it. Obviously, we all have rage in us, but I think he did an incredible acting job in this movie, honestly. Well, also, like, the heartbreak that he has on his face when his mother tells him what actually occurred those many years ago. And there's so much conflict in his eyes because he wants to hate her, but he doesn't want to believe her. And there's so many emotions that are swirling around in his head. And he's not saying much. She's doing all the talking, but you can see that there's a myriad of emotions fluttering through his head at that moment. And you've got this enormous beast of a man. (laughs) And yet he... He looks broken. Instantly, he's like a a 12-year-old boy again. He is. That's what I feel when I'm watching that scene. The acting in that scene is off the hook. I mean, Nicole, I think that's the best performance I've seen her do. I was just so blown away. And, And of course... It was great for them because they'd had this history of doing very difficult scenes together in Big Little Lies, so they felt safe. I think somebody else asked me, which take did you end up using of the kiss at the end? (laughs) Oops, spoiler alert, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, hopefully most people will have seen it by now, but... If they haven't, they need to run out and go see it right away. Yeah, right. Well, that particular moment, somebody asked me, which take did you use? Was it the last take? Did you have to build up to get that intensity? And actually, no. I can remember, I think we did seven or eight takes, and they were all good. From the beginning, they hit the ground running and the intensity was there. And in fact, there was a couple of times in that scene where Rob had to say to Alexander, it's your line. (laughs) (laughs) Alexander was watching Nicole And partly he was so in the scene, like a part of his actor brain was thinking to himself, how is she doing that? How is (laughs) she sort of conjuring this intensity and and authenticity? And for a moment, he sort of just forgot himself and was just trying to figure out how how is she doing it? Yeah, that scene is just, wow. Oh, it was so much fun to cut. It was undoubtedly my favourite scene to edit in the whole film. I mean, I just followed their lead. And I do this a lot when I'm cutting dialogue scenes. You know, when you've got two great actors, I mean, a lot in The Lighthouse as well, of course, you let their rhythm tell you where the edits are. Mm. It suddenly becomes so easy because they're acting at such a high standard. Their timing is flawless. So I just follow their timing and it just cuts like butter. Yeah, but then you also have a wealth of riches. Yes. Everything is so good. So you have all these jewels, which (laughs) you can't use them all. Take choice, take choice. You know, and that is the thing about editing. That's the one thing people don't actually appreciate or they don't know, they don't understand. And why would they? The minute you have people thinking about the editing, then you're lost because it's all about keeping them in the story. I know it's old-fashioned, the old invisible edit stuff, but that is what I live by. That's the kind of editing I like doing. I do think there is a place for fancy stuff, more kinetic stuff, and when the editing actually becomes part of the story, 
I think that's great. Like Zola, I think that's brilliantly edited. It's absolutely perfect for that film. I don't even know whether I can do that, <laughs> honestly. I don't know. Well, it's the form equaling the content. And yeah, yeah. you could totally do that. It's just you have to have a movie that calls for that. Maybe, yeah. Uh, but I just know for me personally, that's not what I get excited about. I get excited about... Sorry, it's boring. It's really boring. Character and story. Character is not boring. <laughs> Character is not boring. It's uh, it's everything. I want people to be so drawn in by the story that they don't notice anything. I mean, it's very hard for anybody that actually works in the medium. It's almost impossible when you sit down in a movie theater and start watching something. Like I was just talking about Alex in that scene with Nicole. Part of your brain is like, oh, that was a good edit. Oh, what, what can I learn? <laughs> you know, like, how did that work? Oh, that was interesting. And sometimes I do that at home. I'll rewind something because I'm like, oh, that really worked. How did that work? But for the most part, you know, it's a good film if you stop thinking about that stuff. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And you're just in it. I'm in it for telling this story. It's take choices. You really craft a performance in the edit. And the really good actors, they know that too. Mm -hmm. You know, they know that. Well, I thought you did a fantastic job. I was mesmerized, which I think has a lot to do with everyone, but including your great skill as an editor. And I really enjoyed talking to you today. So thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. Behold. such a hellish place to find what was stolen from me and what is that the kingdom Jesus!